approach uh, Thanksgiving in this time, a, a good reminder for us about, about gratitude. Uh, I've heard it said, you've probably heard it said before, but it's a good question to ask ourselves. If, if God only blessed us with those things in which we were thankful for, um, how much would we have? Or what would we have? And, and this need for us, not just in this time of year, but always to, to have hearts of gratitude and all things to be thankful. And thankfulness is a good kind of segue into, into our message this morning, into uh, this time, and we're going to turn in just a few moments to Second Chronicles uh, chapter 31. But what we do, kind of, I, I called it a series, it's only two sermons, so we call it a part A or a part B of, this, of these messages called First Things First, which challenges us to, to examine the priorities of our lives, to ask ourselves, what's number one? And a grateful heart is, is a part of that, because a grateful heart allows us to put things in the perspective and to give, especially when that grateful heart is, is oriented toward God and a heart of gratitude and prayerful appreciation for the blessings that we have. And allows us to then have a heart that, that can rightfully prioritize God, that can begin to live into our foundational verse for this, these few weeks together, has been Matthew 6, verse 33. Uh, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, is what Jesus says. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What are these things? Love, salvation, grace, belonging, identity, sense of worth. That the blessings that God pours into our lives when we have a heart that's prioritized, the things of God and, and His kingdom and His righteousness. And it begins to orient the pursuits of our lives into the things that matter. That's the second part that I want to remind you was the quote from Francis Chan last week that I shared, if you were here, that said this. said that my greatest failure, or my greatest fear in life, I'm sorry, my greatest fear in life is not failure, but it's being successful in things that ultimately don't matter. Means successful in things that ultimately and maybe eternally don't matter. So we're going to look at this uh, story that we find, or these events that we find in Second Chronicles 31, that are part of the history of the people of Israel, that I believe begin to give us some, some very important principles to, to challenge our lives and to think through our own priorities and, and the way that our life is, is organized in, in faith and obedience. So... Let's turn to 2 Chronicles 31, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read the scripture, and then we're going to kind of go back for a few minutes and um, put this in, in context. But this is what we read, beginning again. 2 Chronicles 31, verse 1. When all this had ended, and I'm going to go back and talk about what all this is, the Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. They destroyed the high places and the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh. After they had destroyed all of them, the Israelites returned to their own towns and to their own property. Hezekiah assigned the priests and Levites to divisions, each of them according to their duties as priests or Levites, to offer burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, to minister, to give thanks, and to sing praises at the gates of the Lord's dwelling. The king contributed from his own possessions for the morning and evening burnt offerings and for the burnt offerings on the Sabbaths at the new moons and at the appointed festivals as written in the law of the Lord. He ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due the priests and Levites so they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. 
As soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of the grain, new wine, olive oil, and honey, and all that the fields produced. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything. The people of Israel and Judah who lived in the towns of Judah also brought a tithe of the herds and flocks and the tithe of the holy things dedicated to the Lord their God, and they piled them in heaps. They began doing this in the third month and finished in the seventh month. That is a four-month offering. It's a four-month offering. When Hezekiah and his officials came and saw the heaps, they praised the Lord and blessed his people Israel. Hezekiah asked the priests and Levites about the heaps, and Azariah, the chief priest from the family of Zaduk, answered, Since the people began to bring their contributions to the temple of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and plenty to spare, because the Lord has blessed his people, and this great amount is left over. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. And let us pray. Lord, bless us in these moments by, by hearing. Bless us by, by being challenged by your word, shaped into the way of Christ. Lord, just help us to, to see differently in these moments and to understand our call of obedience and faith. We pray it in Christ Jesus. Amen. So this story, this this. Part of the, the narrative of, of Second Chronicles is part of the, the history of Israel. We really do have to understand what's going on in the history of Israel to begin to fully um, grasp the significance of what's happening here in the reign of, of King Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah is one of a, a long reign of kings in the history of, of Israel, in the history of Judah. Now, there are two idealized, um, venerated kings, the, the, the greatest kings of Israel, the, the, idea, uh, the, the, the ones that which were looked as greater than all the others, the two great kings of Israel. Do you know who they are? David and? And Chris, smart Alex there. <laughs> David and Solomon. David and Solomon. Those were the two, the two, uh, that's not that funny. Come on now. <laughs> Those were the two great kings. You know, some people, you, retired preachers are the worst. Can I tell you that? <laughs> David, and, David and Solomon. They're the two that were the, the idealized. They were the, the kings during the, the greatest era in, in the history of, history of Israel. David who established the kingdom. Solomon who built it to just wonderful heights. The problem was after Solomon, things really started to go south. After Solomon, things started to, to fall apart in many ways. And, and in the aftermath of Solomon's reign, the kingdom of, of Israel was torn in two. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, the two tribes and the ten tribes. And, and they were split and they had different kings. And there's this repetitive pattern in Chronicles. I've talked about this before. But as kings would come and kings would go, it would go something like this. Bad king, bad king, good king. Bad king, good king, bad king, bad king. Good king, bad king, bad king. That, that's kind of the way it would trace out if you followed it. And, and, and they had far more bad kings than they had good kings. And really the, 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 the measuring stick, the barometer of, of bad king was, was a king that was disobedient to the, to the ways of God, to the will of God, who introduced the worship of, of foreign gods and, and the worship of um, idols, as we talked about last week, into the, the practices of the people. And, and as the king would go, so would go the nation. 
and they would begin to deviate from the ways and the very things God had told them not to do in Deuteronomy, they would do. And the things God um, told them to do, they wouldn't do. And so this, is, this goes on and on, and very often during the reign of the bad kings, bad things would happen. And the people would kind of turn their hearts back to the Lord, and there'd be somewhat of a revival, but it was always short-lived. And so here in Second Chronicles 31, King Hezekiah comes to prominence. And King Hezekiah is a good king. And he's initiating a revival in the land of Israel. But King Hezekiah followed a bad king, his father, King Ahaz. And Ahaz was a very bad king. So much so that when Ahaz died, he wasn't even laid to rest with the good kings. He was laid to rest somewhere else. And, and what Ahaz did that was uh, extremely, or, or was the high abomination really, was the fact that he not only allowed and, and built these foreign idols and these, these Asherah poles and these places of worship, he brought them into the temple. The Holy of Holies. The place where God dwelt, and he introduced the worship of foreign gods there. And so when Hezekiah comes in, he, again, begins and he initiates this revival. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, right before this chapter, he invites the people to come and to celebrate the feast, the feast of Passover. And they begin to recapture their identity as God's chosen people. They begin to retell their story and remember who they are and who God is and what God has done for them. And it is after that worship and that festival that we pick up at verse 1 of 2 Chronicles 31. And as we do, we begin to get some principles for our life that inform what it looks like when we put God number one. What we need to do in our lives to prioritize, rightly prioritize, the, the place of God. Because there are so many things that I talked about last week that begin to compete with God that begin to take that first priority and that first place in our lives. And they're not necessarily bad things. Remember, that was another thing we said last week, that, that idols are good things that become God things, and that's the bad thing. And so things that begin to creep into our life, like material pursuits, like career pursuits, like even family and significant relationships, those are good things, but not when they take the place of God. And what happens is when they do, we become just like the people of Israel who we look at and go, well, how could they worship these foreign idols? Well, we worship idols that just look different and they're culturally um, valued and even celebrated, but they're idols nonetheless. And so what do the people do? They have a cleansing they have a cleansing. The thing we read in the very first verse there in 31, when all this had ended, the festival, the celebration, the worship, the Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah and smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asher poles. They destroyed the high places and the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh. They went out, and I talked about this last week, and they eliminated the competition. They said, these are the things that we have allowed to take God's place, and they removed them. And that's what we're called to do, to do the self-examination of our own lives and ask God to do a cleansing for us, to remove those things, or at the very least, not necessarily remove, but to put them in their proper place in our lives, those things that we have allowed to become our idols, that we've allowed to take us away from God. Now see, here's the thing that this is what makes it so hard for us, is that it's hard to identify because most likely not one of us has had a moment where we've said, you know what, 
I'm going to put something in front of God. I'm going to make something more important to me than God. I'm going to make my career more important than God. Or I'm going to make my relationships more important than God. Or I'm going to make um, making money more important than God. Whatever it is, we don't usually come at it that way and kind of in one moment, in one concrete decision, say, I'm going to put something in front of God. What happens is we slowly drift into that place. You know, Jesus used that image of, of the sheep that has gone astray. Well, you know how sheep go astray? They don't set out to leave the herd. They don't sit out and say, I don't want to be near the shepherd. What they do is they just begin to nibble on the grass. And they keep their head down, and they just keep nibbling. And further and further they wander, till suddenly they look up, and the shepherd and the herd are gone. They don't say, let's go out on our own. They just find themselves there by this process of moving further and further away from their protector. That's, that's what happens to us. I, I, I thought about that image... You know, most of us as children probably at some point got lost, got separated from mom or dad at a mall or a store or someplace where we kind of found ourselves where you look up and mom and dad aren't there and you have that moment, moment of panic. Well, as children, that happens to us, but I don't think any child ever sits there and says, hey, I want to leave mom and dad, but we're out and something gets our attention. Something looks good to us. Something attracts us and we find ourselves wandering off. We need to occasionally sight we need to pick our heads up. Ask God to cleanse us of those things so we can stay on a track that, that honors Him. That, I, I know I'm kind of over-illustrating the point, but, but when um, I have done the opportunity to do short triathlons uh, that have had open water swims, so you're out in, in the ocean or, or at a lake, you've got to sight by buoys because you're, you're not swimming in lanes, lanes at a pool. So you swim a little bit, and you constantly have to pick your head up and sight the buoy so you swim in a straight line. Otherwise, what happens is, and it's hysterical to watch if you get to go watch a race, you'll know those who don't sight the buoys because everybody's swimming this way, and they start swimming this way. And the worst thing is you spend a lot of energy swimming in the wrong direction, and then you sight, and you have to course correct. And we spend a lot of energy because we start going in the wrong direction. We need to course correct. We need to ask God to cleanse just like the people of Israel did. And when they did, it allowed them, as it does us, to get our hearts right for worship. See, that's what happened when they course corrected. In fact, it says, in fact, the very next verse. Let me go back to verse 2. It says, after they cleansed all these foreign idols, it says, Hezekiah assigned the priests and the Levites to divisions, each of them according to their duties as priests and Levites, to offer burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, to minister, to give thanks, and to sing praises at the gates of the Lord's dwelling. When we begin to remove those things from us that get in the God's way, we begin to open our hearts for worship, for proper worship. And when I say proper worship, I don't mean worship that's defined by the right songs being sung or the right liturgy being said or the right, the, the, the right um, dress among the congregation. I'm talking about those kind of things. I'm talking about right worship as a spiritual reality, as hearts that are open to God's presence, to, to experience worship in spirit and truth. Because we've removed those things that get in the way. That's what the Israelites did. They removed those things, and they were able to worship. When we begin to remove those things, we open our hearts to the presence of God through worship. And we can come and rightfully experience and powerfully experience His presence and His love, unencumbered by those false gods that, that we put in the way, that dominate our thoughts and our pursuits and our energy and our time. So we need to start with asking God to do a cleanse. We need to start by looking at our own lives and being willing to do a cleanse so that we 
can offer our worship to God. And when we do that, then we learn how to give. See, the order really, really matters because the people cleansed and they worshiped. And then in verse 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, it talks about the offerings they brought, the first fruits, the herds. They brought their tithe. And the tithe was just 10%. That's what tithe means. They brought their 10%. But once their hearts were right with God, out of that, out of the gratitude of them recapturing their story, out of the gratitude of recognizing what God and remembering what God had done for them, out of that gratitude, they were able to give. See, that order matters. And we don't give in order to get from God. We give because we've already received. We give because we've already, we give because we've already gotten That's what the people realize. That's what God calls us to. We begin to give. And that's where it brings us to the examination of what do we do with our money. I warned you last week we were going to get here. And I can feel the eyeballs rolling. Here he comes. It's preacher talking about money. And yeah, yeah I am. And and you know, if you worship here, I probably don't do this enough. In fact, God kicked me in the pants this week in preparing for this message and said, you don't do this enough. Because I don't like to talk about money. I'm, I'm aware of the perception. I'm aware of people out there say that's all the church wants. They just want your money. Preacher just wants your money. And, and so sometimes I back away a little bit. Remember I said that idol of wanting your approval more than I want God's approval sometimes? There it is. There it is. Because interestingly enough, God has a lot to say about money. In fact, I realize that if you don't like me talking about it, take it up with God. Because I want you to hear this. I want you to hear these statistics. In all seriousness, I want you to, I want you to hear these statistics. I pulled them, um, heard them this week. It's kind of study of the scriptures. Talking about some major theological topics, if you will. Let's talk about baptism. Baptism's important. Very important. In the scriptures, we find about 40 verses that talk about baptism. Okay? Uh, how about prayer? Prayer is essential in the life of those in Christ. Well, in the course of prayer, you find about 275 verses on prayer. Faith. Faith, very, very important. 350 verses on faith. And how's faith lived out? It's lived out in love. We know the call of Christ is to love. Well, there are 650 verses on love. But when you get to material possessions and the way we use our resources for the work of the kingdom of God, there are 2,370 verses in the scriptures on money and how we use money and how we invest in God's work. 2,370. Now, you can argue with the fine numbers there, and depending on translations, you may move that up or down a little bit, but you get the point. Jesus has more to say about money than anything else. That's what he says. You can't serve both God and money. That's what he says. He's because you'll love one and hate the other. And he warns. He says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man or woman to enter the kingdom of God. And that should make you squirm, because it does me. Why does Jesus talk so much about money? Because there's, he knows that there's nothing easier for us to make a God in our lives than money. Because we all need it. Everybody needs it. In fact, if you're sitting out there and you're thinking to yourself, I don't need money, then I salute you and I invite you to give me yours. <laughs> because I will take it from you. Because Jesus says, be careful. Be careful. Remember the rich young ruler who wanted to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, that's fine. Just sell everything and come with me. He couldn't do it. Wasn't that his heart wasn't sincere in his desire, but it wasn't his number one priority. And again, if those texts don't make you nervous, 
You're not thinking deeply enough about it. Jesus says over and over in the scriptures, over and over, let us know that how we use our money will reveal where our hearts are. Over and over, Jesus says, you've got to get this right. Why does God call us to give? Why does Jesus talk and the scriptures talk so much about money? It's not that God needs your money. Hear this. God doesn't need your money. Now, let me, let, let's be transparent. The church does. We do. We can't be here and do what we do without your tithes and offerings. We can't do that without your support. So don't differ. But God's will will be done. God's purpose will be fulfilled. His plan will carry forward whether you or I give a single dollar to it. God's not dependent upon our money, though he does a lot of blessings through it. God wants our hearts. And when we learn to be generous and tithe and give, we put God first. We begin to sever the ties of materialism that binds us up. I, I sat this week in a theological discussion group. I was down at First United Methodist Church in Boca doing some, some research down there. And they had a, a, a Thursday evening group that meets... Um, at this, this upper room, at a, upper room, interestingly enough, at a, at a restaurant place. And, and it's this private, quiet room where you can get food and people can bring, you know, something to drink up. And they sit around, and it's a theology group. They just throw topics out and they talk about it. There's about 12 of us sitting in a circle. And on a side note, there was, there was a few, there was like four college-age students in the group. And there was a couple couples that were about my age. And there were and then a couple older couples. And... Um, it was wonderful. They were, we were actually doing a little talk on politics, and there were self-described liberals and conservatives in this group. And you know what? They were nice to each other, and they listened to each other, and they talked respectfully to each other, and they heard each other's perspectives. It was refreshing in this crazy season we've been in. But then the topic turned to tithing and giving. There was a gentleman sitting next to me that I would later learn was a doctor, or is a doctor. And um, he was saying that he and his wife committed to tithing when he was looking for a job, when he had no job. And he said they've continued since they're now on financial solid ground. But he said the act of tithing for him began to sever the, the chains of materialism. The act of tithing for him became a way in which he prioritize God, and all of a sudden, those material pursuits, it's not that he still didn't have them, but they weren't first and foremost. They weren't most important. It freed, it liberated him. And I'm sitting there going, thank you, Lord, for this sermon illustration that I'm getting right now from this friend who I've just met. That's what tithing does. That's why God calls us to that. Certainly, God does use a lot of blessing through our giving, but it starts that we're blessed through our giving. And hear me say this, friends. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. I remember a conversation Tony and I had. We were just married. We were living in North Carolina. I was at school. Tony was working full-time to help put me through school. We were doing okay. We had a roof over our head. We had enough money for food, but we didn't have much extra. And, and you got to re realize that Tony and I, in hindsight, we didn't feel at the time, we got married really young. She was 21. I was 22. So we thought we were mature and knew what we were doing. We didn't have a clue. And um, we're sitting there, and I can remember we're sitting in the parking lot of a bilo, and we're talking because I paid the bills and money was tight. And I can remember dealing with that temptation to say, you know, we'd have a little bit more if we just didn't tithe to the church. Do they really need our money? I mean, I had that thought. 
And I can remember sitting there as we talked about it and prayed about it. And we got out of that car committed to continuing to give as faithfully as we could to tithe to the ministry of the church that we'd been called to be a part of. I wasn't serving as a pastor. I was, we were part of the church. And, and, uh, but we committed to that because I knew, and I still know, that as soon as I start to take from God, not only do I separate myself from some of the blessings of God, but we begin to prioritize money over God's call upon our lives. And that's hard, and it doesn't get any easier. It, uh, the, the numbers change, but it's no easier now than it was then. We've got, you know, Ryan, our son, is a year away from college. And there's times, and I'll tell you, I confess, I go, boy, I could certainly put some of that money toward college. Or, or Tony and I save him for retirement. I could put some of that toward retirement. I have this, this, this false pursuit that somehow this is the security. These are the things that will give me the blessings that God says, I want to give to you. But Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So we give. Why? Because we find blessings in it. We give because we find blessings in it. And we find personal blessings in it. Now, hear me say this. I'm not telling you that God's going to pour money into your bank account because you tithe. This is not a sermon that says you give $1 and God's going to give you 10 If you want that message, go turn on your television. Find a televangelist. They'll tell you that all day long. Okay, I'm not. I'm not telling you that God won't material bless you through your faithful giving, but that's not what God's ultimate promise is. Ephesians 1 talks about the blessings that we receive from God, and they're the spiritual blessings. His grace, His goodness, His love, His strength. That's what God pours into us. But we are blessed nonetheless. Don't make no mistake. God blesses us in our faithfulness. And God provides, and I can tell you, through the years and through the rearview mirror of my life and Tony's and my life together, there have been times when we have struggled to pay bills, but God's always been faithful. There have been times we weren't sure how we were going to see ourselves through it, but God's always been faithful. And that meant sometimes we had seasons in which we continued to struggle in those ways. God was still faithful. So we position ourselves for blessings. But here's the other thing. We get to bless others. I love the verse in verse 7. It just says that when the king Hezekiah he could, came, he could see the stores, the heaps of, of the offerings, and he rejoiced and prayed blessings on the people. He got to see the blessing of faithfulness. Friends, we get to see the blessings of our faithfulness right here at Parish United Methodist Church. Walk down on a Sunday morning and peek in the Sunday school rooms and see the kids, and we get to see the blessings of our faithfulness. Come into our worship services, the, each of the worship services, and we get to see the blessings of our faithfulness. This is the blessings of our faithfulness. Shoe boxes are the blessings of our faithfulness. And we could go on and on about the ministries that are the blessings of our faithfulness. We receive together the blessings of our faithfulness. We get to see it every week, what God does through the faithfulness of our tithes and offerings, our giving, our obedience. Monday night in here, we had the charge conference. I know some of you uh, were here. And uh, our district superintendent, Candace Lewis, was here. And she did something I didn't expect her to do. I didn't know she was going to do. Um, after I had given the pastor's report, um, she asked people to share with her, as a new district superintendent, to, to talk about me. That's always fun. And uh, she said, tell, tell, tell me about Chris and his ministry and his leadership. And, and it was 
wonderfully affirming, and for those of you that did, I sincerely thank you. Um, it, was, it was a very affirming time for me, but it was incredibly uncomfortable. I was sitting right back over there, and you know, I, you want to squirm, just have somebody invite a whole room of people to talk about you. That'll make you squirm. But I'll tell you what really blessed me were not the words that people said about me. Those were, they were a blessing. But they were that some of you stood up and you used that as a bridge to talk about some other things. And, and Chuck Cavlick, who's not, it, stood up and, and he said a couple nice things about me. But then he began to talk about the contemporary worship service. He began to talk about the praise band. He began to talk about John and the impact and, and how that has blessed him and, and how he's been blessed through that. And I thought that's, that's the fruit of our faithfulness. You know, many of you um, and many of you supported that. When, remember, we, had, we didn't have that service. And you and your giving and your patience made that possible and people are blessed through it. And, and let's see, Bert, are you back there? I see Kay. No, Bert's not here today. Okay, Bert... Bert stood up and spoke, and maybe it's good that it didn't, so I don't embarrass him today, but Bert stood up and spoke, and he said some nice things. But he began to talk about the church, and he talked about the family, and the way that he connected, and, and, and the, the way that he and Kay had been blessed by not just me, but by us. That's the fruits, and we could go on and on. That's where the blessings happen. We get a chance to see the blessings and see the way that God works through his abundance, when we're willing to be generous and faithful with his gifts. In fact, the, the last thing to read there is, is what, uh, what the king hears, the news that he hears as it's reported. He says, Hezekiah asked the priests and Levites about the heaps, and Azariah, the chief priest from the family of Zadok, answered, Since the people began to bring their contributions to the temple of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and plenty to spare, because the Lord has blessed his people, and this great amount is left over. God takes that, and he blesses, but he multiplies. That's the principle of Jesus in the Sermon on the, or, or the, sermon where the Five Loaves and the Two Fish. He takes a little, and in abundance multiplies. We have a God of, not a God of scarcity, but a God of abundance who uses us to be a blessing when we're willing to give, when we're willing to, in our priority, to put him first. And that's a hard thing to do. I'll leave you with a, a story before we close of, of a pastor that was visiting a farmer who was in his community. The farmer's name is Billy. And he says, Billy, if you had two farms, would you give one of those farms to God? And Billy said, you know, pastor, if I had two farms, I'd give one of those farms to God. He said, Billy, if you had $10,000, would you give $5,000 to God? He said, Pastor, you know if I had $10,000, I'd give $5,000 to God. He says, all right, Billy, if you had two pigs, would you give one of those pigs to God? He said, oh, Pastor, that's just not fair. You know I have two pigs. <laughs> we hold back. We hold back. And in holding back so often, we miss the blessings of God for us and others. How many of us would not want to see a church full of stories of people who've been blessed, who have connected, who've been, had their needs met and their spirits filled by the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ? How many of us don't want a church full of stories of children that are blessed and community that is blessed and bellies that are fed? That's what God invites us to. That's our opportunity. That is absolutely our opportunity. But our challenge is we have to cleanse we have to prioritize. We have to be willing to give to God 
not to meet what he has given to us. We can't outgive God, but as response to what God has given to us and as a response to the blessings that we have received. That is our opportunity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we, uh, we turn our hearts to you, and we invite you to, to challenge us, to, to force our eyes to look inward, to be honest before you about the things that we've allowed to become our priority, to get in the way of you being number one, the blessings that we have missed and the blessings that we have failed to be in, to others. Help us to give generously, to give thankfully and with joy, as is the call of Christ. We ask it in your precious and holy name. Amen and amen.